Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Canada's economy grew at an annual rate of 5.4% in the third quarter. I don't know if that means a whole lot to people who aren't economists, but it sounds good. And then StatsCan reveals that the GDP declined at an annual rate of 3.4% between April and June. I don't know what I don't know what that means. The projection had been that it would drop 1.1%. So how does this mesh and perhaps affect expected interest rates from the Bank of Canada next year? Also, the federal government is trumpeting job growth in November. I just wonder about that. There's some loose ends here. Like, how many people decided that they were not going to look for work anymore because they're discouraged? Where does that all fit in? And then, of course, there's the uh, supply chain. So to sort all of this for us, and he'll take some phone calls from you, is our great friend and go-to economist, macroeconomist from Ryerson University, Professor Eric Cam. Professor, how are you today? I'm good, Roy. Happy Hanukkah to you and the listeners. Yes, sir, and to you as well. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you. So, what's, so, so for the average person who hears 5.4% economic growth annual rate third quarter, but StatsCan reveals the GDP declined at an annual rate of 3.4% between April and June when it had been expected to be 1.1%, we try to look smart like we can figure out what this all, all means. But in layman's terminology, I mean, maybe everybody else understands, but would you tell me what that means? Well, sure. I mean, imagine that you went um, you went target shooting and you were just going to shoot an arrow at a tree and you took your first shot and you missed to the left by five percent and then you missed to the right by five percent and you screamed, I got it. That's kind of where we're sitting at right now. So <laughs> it's a phenomenon in economics and it doesn't happen that much, but it's called right. overshooting, which is Statistics Canada and the government of Canada and the Bank of Canada they put together projections and every now and then you're not just wrong, you're very wrong, but people have come to realize that in the last couple of years, when they've been wrong, they've been wrong on the negative side. They've been wrong with negative job growth and negative income growth and prices going up too high. And so what you see right now is that um, an economy, Roy, is a pretty dynamic animal. And no matter what sometimes you do to try to um, hurt it or even not help it, Sometimes an economy reacts the way it should. So we are coming out of this pandemic and the economy right now is very heated and it's kind of on overdrive. So they haven't updated their GDP statistics yet, but when they do, you'll see that gross domestic product has gone up because every other macro variable that a year ago, Roy, we were crying is just doing terribly. Now they're all going up by faster than anybody expected. So you can look at the fall in unemployment the rise in employment, job growth, wage growth, they are all going up and they're all going up faster than any of the so-called experts had predicted. So what you have is a situation where the economy is outpacing predictions. And now you say to yourself and the listeners say, well, that sounds good. Uh, And it is sitting here right now today on December 5th, you know, in the afternoon, it's very good if you're looking for a job, if you're looking for some wage growth, if you're looking to change jobs into a better job. Yeah, on the surface, it looks very good. But as we know, anytime you overshoot your macroeconomic indicators, 
that inflationary monster is creeping its ugly head and it is going to do so again. Anyone who's been to the grocery store, Roy, knows that prices have gone up significantly and they're only going to continue to go up, which now brings me back to your original question, to which I've been incredibly long winded interest rates. The Bank of Canada announced they're going to go up late next year. Well, you can rest assured that when they get together in their boardroom, they're going to discuss a much earlier raising because while short term inflation actually signals positive economic development, long term inflation signals economic disaster. And so the Bank of Canada is going to have to think about when is it time to throw some cold water on this very overheated fire. So for the average person who's listening now, who has a mortgage, who has groceries, who has energy costs, and you know, my metaphor for um, for inflation was, and I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago, that's when you go to the gas station and the grocery store in the same morning and you can't afford to fill up at either. Uh, for the average person who finds themselves perhaps in a situation like that or is cutting back on expenditures because of inflationary pressures, what does this all mean? What happens to them next year? What's going to happen to interest rates? Is it going to threaten people's personal economies or, or is it just going to draw things into some semblance of order? Well, you'd have to have a real crystal ball to know that. I mean, and I don't like to punt on your question, but the answer is, if they raise interest rates by, say, 25 basis points or 50 basis points, it'll just cause a moderating effect on spending. But if the Bank of Canada, in a very uncharacteristic move, you know, raises interest rates in the short term, say, within a year by a percent or a percent and a half, well, that's nothing that we want because it's going to put buying pretty much anything out of range for the average person. Now, again, you talk about um, you know, this pandemic and where it's left people. And I think that it's really bifurcated our society in a way that we couldn't imagine, because if, it, it's a funny thing. If you are a person who's just starting to dig out of being in the hole in the pandemic, there is some good news that you are probably going to find a job easier than you could have a year ago, six months ago, or really at any time in the, in the foreseeable past uh, in our lives. But the bad news is, is that if you're a person who's sort of in that, what I call the mushy middle, and you're a middle class person, you have your job, all you really see right now are disposable prices going up, meaning if you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, and then that yeah. person probably has a mortgage. And if they can afford it today, they're praying the Bank of Canada that does not go ahead with too fast, too high a rate hike, or right. you just may have situations yeah. You still there? So, you know, Roy, it's a hard question because it depends on where, where on that spectrum of income sustainability are you. And the only thing we know with certainty is if you're at the high end, you're safe. Just before we get a couple of calls on for you, uh, Professor Cam, a couple of issues and points we've made. We've talked about this. Canadians, according to polling, not long ago were within $200 and not being able to pay their monthly expenses. And that is deeply concerning. Now we see that Canadians at this time of year, Christmas, are using credit cards very heavily. What are your thoughts on that? And then let's also ask you about the reappearance of the reemergence of COVID to into our everyday life now with a new Omicron uh, variant, variant rather, viral variant. And, um, and what's that going to do to the markets? Because the markets are bouncing up and down. Too many unknowns here. Well, there's there's a lot of unknowns. Now, to your first question, uh, it's no surprise to anybody listening that the worst type of debt in society, 
of all the debts there are in society, the worst type is owing your credit card. Because if you look at what's called the effective rate, credit cards are up near 30%. And so I would really encourage people to take a, a sit down and look at their debt levels and see what where people are, in a sense, take a, a scorecard and see where you are and what you can do going forward. Of course, people are going to spend money at Christmas. Um, that's never going to change. But, you know, you you can't, to use a horrible exp- expression, blow your brains out um, if if you are, A, one of those people who are within $200 of insolvency. Which is B, almost half the population. That's right. That's right. And so and a good chunk of that half of the population is also just starting to pull themselves out yeah. of COVID. Maybe but let me going- ask you, what does this what does this do to the the economy? If you have a population that is that close to the margins and you have a, a rush of credit card use at this particular time, as we like to think we're starting to come out of the, the, the pandemic, who knows? But how much of an impact does that have on the national economy? It has at all, if it impact- does. It has a huge impact. Number one, in terms of the stability of the economy, it weakens it tremendously. And we all know that one of the worst signals of an economic downturn, Roy, is bankruptcies. And so if people start declaring personal bankruptcies, the signal that you send to the economy is that it's in bad shape. People start saving like crazy. And then we start to put ourselves into a bit of a self-fulfilling spiral. So that's why I, I always tell people I'm not a personal financial advisor, but you're not going to be able to avoid spending, but you've got to contain your spending to what is for you a comfortable level. And nobody can tell anybody else what that comfortable level is. Everybody yeah. has to figure out their own level of comfortability. Yeah. Don't know what, know what your personal finances are about. Before I ask you about the stock market, let me take a couple of calls for you. Because we always get a lot of phone reaction where, when you're on and great questions from our callers and listeners. We'll start with Craig, who's in Barrie, Ontario. Craig, please go ahead, for Professor Cam. What's your question? Oh, good afternoon, both of you. Um, yes, sir. Hi. Quick question. Um, I'm hearing on the news that uh, employment numbers are much better than pre-COVID. Um, I'd like to know how that's possible when all I see is, you know, help wanted signs. There's thousands of businesses that closed forever who aren't employing anybody anymore. Where's this employment coming from? The employment, that's an excellent question. You've got to remember that when you look at the unemployment rate, that statistic isn't perfect. And as Roy pointed out to begin the show, it doesn't include things like part-time workers going to full-time, and it doesn't include people like discouraged workers who are just so tired of looking for jobs that they fall out of looking for jobs. And so then instantaneously to Statistics Canada, they're no longer unemployed. So the answer to your question is, to be skeptical of the bounce back. A lot of the increases are in part-time work, a lot where employers aren't really, for lack of a better word, married to the employees in terms of benefits and pensions. So it's very, very um, unstable employment. Yet, if you're looking for a job, that could be as good as it gets right now. All right. Thank you very much for the call, Craig. Let's move on to Howard, who's in Thornhill, Ontario as well. Again, the number is 888 Howard, what's your question for Professor Cam? Well, thanks for uh, taking my question. Uh, I'm just curious to know uh, what you think right now about precious metals like gold and silver. I'm very concerned about the economy, and I'm, I'm not sure what's going to happen, and I want to investigate that. 
Um, it's a good question. Gold and silver, precious metals tend to be a- among the more stable stocks. They're not as stable as, say, bank stocks. But um, again, I'm not a personal financial advisor, and I'm not going to tell you to buy or sell. But I would say precious metals right now are as they've always been. They're expensive, but they're stable expensive. And I don't think you have to worry if your portfolio is um, filled at, to some extent with precious metals. All right. Thank you very much for the call, Howard. By the way, Professor Cam, when I was uh, in my really young years and uh, and Goldfinger came out, the uh, James Bond movie, I was so taken with the idea of gold, I bought some with every nickel I could scrape together for 24 bucks an ounce. And I kept it for a long time. I did okay. Now I think it's around 1800 isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just under 2000 You know, you can't go <laughs> wrong with things like precious metals. You can't go wrong with things that are long run stable. And by the way, I mean, a conversation for another time is that we used to be on a gold standard. We used to make sure that That's every right. dollar we had in the bank was That's backed right. by gold. Was it a terrible idea? Um, no, it wasn't a terrible idea. The problem is, is that when you have a gold standard, that's that's akin to fixing your exchange rate. And that's akin to not having enough power in terms of your monetary policy. But I will always be an advocate of things like gold and silver that even though they go up and down, it's like using a yo-yo walking up steps. In the long run, they're going to go up. Okay, so let's go back to the economy and and what we're doing and what the prospects are. So the joker in the deck continues to be the uh, COVID virus, the coronavirus and its various variants. And, uh, you know, we have the Fed chair in the United States telling Congress that Omicron COVID variant might threaten the U.S. economic recovery. And Biden dropped the part of his speech in which he was prepared to say the supply chain challenges would be successfully addressed. So when you put those three two together and you have a volatile stock market, what are you expecting COVID to potentially do to our economy going forward from this day forward? You know what? In this sense, and this is going to surprise some people, Roy, I'm pretty glass half full. I think the other I think the good news part of the story that you just didn't mention is the vaccination rate and how well Canada, say, is doing in terms of its vaccines. We know that we cannot afford another economic shutdown. That is just not an option. And I'm not going to tell the government how to do its job, but we've got to keep the doors of our businesses open. And I and I would I would hesitate and want people to know that while they should be worried about inflation, you should always be worried about the price of things. Remember that it signals that we're digging out and the economy, believe it or not, is working as it should. So I hope that people take the Omicron virus seriously in terms of public health. But in terms of economic health, there is only one way forward. Keep business open, keep commerce moving, keep spending going. Anything other than that would just be devastating to the economy when it's when it, it you know it's been gasping for air so long and it's finally finding the positive. So my my law again long-winded answer is keep businesses open, keep commerce flowing. So in the just more than a minute we have left, this question, Canadian bank profits are significant. And TD, for example, raised its dividend to double digits and is planning a stock buyback. What does that say to you? I mean, everybody wants profitable banks or should want profitable banks. a lot better than what they're experiencing in Argentina. So what do you get from this particular story? You know what? I take one thing, that our banking system is strong. I am not worried about bank profits. Banks in this province and in this country employ tens 
of thousands of people. It is one of the leading employers in the country. And so for me, the last thing you want to do is take a swipe at one of the few people that employs thousands and thousands, Roy, of people. So banks making money to me signals that our banks are strong. They're going to keep hiring. They're going to keep the financial system stable. And I know, I know that people get upset when they see the bank profit numbers, but I'm going to ask people to just think about, do you really want to live in a country where banks fail or banks have less than a million dollars in assets? That is just not a it's not an option because it signals that your financial system is always shaky yeah. the reason Professor- that ours is not is because our banks are strong dr joseph londo joins us clinical microbiologist and head of clinical microbiology at saskatoon's royal university and hospital and the university of saskatchewan dr blondo thank you for the time can i just ask you first of all what do you think people ought to do as they're planning for christmas and new year's celebrations how should the Omicron, Delta, and COVID factor into our into our plans uh, in 2021 with 80% of the population vaccinated? Well, that's um, that's a really interesting question, uh, Roy. Uh, and and the reason being is we know an awful lot about Delta. Uh, we know about the advantages of vaccination with Delta and it protecting individuals from serious disease requiring hospitalization and heaven forbid, you know, uh, uh, treatment in the intensive care unit. But we don't know the same about uh, uh, Omicron. We, we simply don't. Um, that data is being generated, you know, as we speak by, you know, various investigators around the world. Um, and and uh, at this point in time, at least in Saskatchewan, we haven't confirmed any cases, but but there have been cases confirmed elsewhere in, in Canada. And, you know, given the rapid rise in cases in South Africa and the fact that community spread with Omicron has now been recognized in a number of different countries, um, I think it's realistic to expect that it's only a matter of time before we see more spread within this country. Um, And until we know what the facts are about this virus, uh, whether it's likely to make people severely ill or not, uh, whether or not our antibody levels and those of us that have been immunized are going to be protective or not. Um, uh, I think that, that, you know, the jury's really out on, on what this all means for us. But, but directly to answer your question, what I would say was that, you know, I, I personally believe that there's still value in making sure that the folks that you're going to interact with over the holidays are people who are immunized. Um, if they're not immunized, obviously, it's up to you to decide whether or not you, you want to accept a negative test. Um, and, and there's probably still a lot of value in trying to keep your, your social bubbles and your family bubbles small um, as, we, as we come into Christmas, just to keep yourself and those around you protected. Yeah. What, uh, how much um, impact will the statements that have come observational statements that have come from doctors in South Africa who've dealt with Omicron and said that their exposure to it as physicians treating individuals who uh, who came down with Omicron, and I think the national population in South Africa is only about 25% uh, vaccinated. They say it's it's mild, fairly mild, and and, uh, and people deal with it reasonably. I don't want to put words in their mouths, but, but it's fairly mild. Let me stop right there. You've, you've heard that as well, I'm sure, Dr. Blondo. So where does that fit into yeah. the whole so, issue? So this, this is the good news part of this story, if this continues to be true. Um, you know, in light of what we've seen with COVID, the original COVID-19 strain, and then the subsequent variants leading up to Delta, 
uh, you know, was a virus that, that caused severe disease in a, in a percentage of the population, uh, which we've seen many, many, many deaths. <clears throat> I don't think anybody really cares if they were to catch a virus and have something analogous to the common cold, you know, maybe a, some sniffles, uh, a runny nose, uh, maybe a little bit of a fever, but but doesn't progress to something more serious. I don't think anybody really cares about that. And if Omicron happens to be a strain uh, for which that's going to be its characteristic sort of clinical disease, is that, you know, you're going to get maybe mildly sick, if, if sick at all, um, um, then then I don't think that 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 would be the devastation or that, you know, is coming out of some of the innuendo that's actually being, uh, you know, commented on both in the media and in, on social media. Uh, in the absence of, of information, you know, people will fill in the blanks on their own and, yeah. um, you know, predict doom and gloom. But but the reality is, is that we have to be an evidence-based society. I think evidence uh, medicine has to be evidence-based. And I think the decisions about what we need to be doing also needs to be evidence-based. And, and right now, we just don't have all of the evidence that, that's required. But I do take your point, though, that, that some of the information coming out of South Africa and some of the information from the World Health Organization saying that this virus, uh, Omicron variant, tends to be associated with milder symptoms. And according to the World Health Organization, there have been no deaths yet recorded uh, because of this variant. But that may change, as, as we know. Um, then I think that, that this is the encouraging part of the news. Um, the other point that I'd like to make was that, you know, there was a flip-flop from Moderna where the chief operating officer had made a comment about <clears throat> maybe the vaccines being less effective against Omicron, only to be followed by the president of the company saying, no, 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 that's not true. So even within, you know, companies that are making vaccines, there's uncertainty about what all of this means. And and really, we should be refraining from those comments until we actually have some factual information yeah. that can guide our thinking. Well, it is concerning, uh, or does concern many people when, you know, the Moderna is the, the booster shot for, for a lot of people. And I was told, when I made my appointment, I was told that even though I've had Pfizer, first and second, the Moderna was going to be the one that I would have to accept as the booster shot. So then I looked at the story in the Financial Times, where the uh, the yeah. executive officer for Moderna said, well, maybe the uh, the vaccines aren't going to be all that effective against uh, against Omicron. So I'm asking myself, why would I, you know, this is the logical progression of thinking. So if the guys who produce the vaccine say it may not be effective against the against the the virus why would i accept that vaccine that's just that's just thought progression of course but but there's two things that we have to keep in mind that are really important the first thing is, is that the predominant strain that's circulating in this country is the delta strain and we know that the delta strain is is responsible for you know severe disease requiring hospitalization and we know uh, during the fourth wave it was primarily seen in the unvaccinated so then along come, you know, information saying that our antibodies may wane over time, which is a natural progression. That That is an expectation. And we know that by getting a booster with either a Pfizer or Moderna, gets our antibody levels back up and is going to protect us against Delta. What the impact is going to be against Omicron remains to be seen. Regardless, though, having that protection against Delta is probably every bit or even more important than worrying about Omicron at this point in time until we know more about it. So, so I would I would think that even though a lot of the chatting in the literature and in the media right now is about Omicron, uh, um, Delta is still the predominant strain, and we know what it does to people that are more vulnerable to infection. The dominant strain, the dominant concern is still Delta. Omicron has just arrived 
and is uh, is starting to uh, be further investigated. And Dr. Blondo, that's really so much a part of the equation, isn't it? Taking the time for science and scientists to have the time to do the proper analysis of a viral variant such as Omicron, and and, and those of us who haven't, haven't got a clue what science is about, uh, not getting on social media and declaring you know, that certain things are fact when we don't know. That, that it's, it's absolutely true. Like, like one of the big questions, Roy, that uh, remains to be answered is, uh, you know, uh, if you were naturally infected with COVID and, and recovered uh, versus somebody who was immunized uh, against the virus and went through, say, either their, their first and second vaccines and even a booster, is the susceptibility of a naturally infected and recovered individual the same as somebody who's been immunized? And that's a question that, that remains unanswered right now. Uh, we, we know that there was earlier data in the literature that suggests that if you were vaccinated, you had a more robust antibody response than if you were naturally infected. And, and depending on the degree of infection that you had or the severity of infection uh, really had an impact on how robust your antibody response was. So one of the things that needs to be teased out in South Africa and elsewhere where this virus has been found is, is uh, are infections occurring more commonly in, in individuals who are A, unvaccinated, and B, had been previously infected but not vaccinated and, and now continue to be susceptible to this particular uh, variant versus those who were, were immunized. And, and that'll be an important question to get an answer to because then it will have an impact on what our vaccine programs have looked like over the last couple of years in, in regards to this new variant that has arised, arisen. Sorry. Yeah. Are we, are we getting ahead of uh, COVID? And I ask this only because there's a line of thinking, and I don't know how scientific this is, but there's a line of thinking that as a virus mutates and creates a variants, that it will weaken itself, that the, the variants will over time become less of an issue, and then the problem becomes that the viral infection becomes endemic, and, and we know that we're in for a combat with this coronavirus for many, many years. Are we getting ahead of it? Are, are, are we getting into the endemic stage? Well, we, we certainly could be, and, and you have to remember, and so do your listeners, that that seasonal coronavirus was something that we used to deal with every uh, every winter or every second winter in this country um, as, you know, the second most common cause of the common cold, the uh, second to rhinoviruses. And, and, and as I said, you know, if, if you're an individual who catches a virus and, and, you know, you know, the main symptoms are that you have a head cold for a few days, I don't think anybody really cares about that. And, and if this is where we're going with this particular virus, then so be it. Uh, certainly what we want to do is we want to make sure that we continue to protect individuals against these uh, variants which cause more severe disease, again, coming back to Delta. And, and, if, and if Omicron is, is an indication that this virus is, is getting to a point where maybe it's going to become more seasonal uh, and more, more commonly associated with just a milder infection, then that won't be a bad thing. But certainly what we don't want to see is we don't want to see a variant which ends up being, say, more deadlier than, than what we've seen with Delta. Yeah. I sometimes, and particularly recently, ask myself whether too much of this has become political and not enough of it is science. And and I ask this, um, I ask myself this fairly regularly when I hear politicians, and it's not fair of me to ask you this, but when I hear politicians speak about uh, a viral infection, I know they don't know any more than I do. 
and and they you know they, they they talk about they talk about it as though they do and i know they have advisors i get all of that but i'd rather li- i'd rather hear it from you than than from a premier or a prime minister who really don't know what they're talking about well well you know i mean it, it's one thing to be it's one thing to be briefed on some information and it's another thing to sort of read the literature for yourself and and have the you know, either the scientific or the clinical background to understand what the implications are, maybe how the investigations were conducted, uh, what type of scientific methods were used. And if you have that understanding, it makes it a little bit easier to grasp what the information actually is. But but the other point that you just raised there, which I think is which is probably one that's been most important throughout the pandemic, is the misinformation that has occurred uh, through social media. Uh, there are a lot of people who are lying awake at night trying to decide what they're supposed to do because they've been led by misinformation uh, through social media by individuals who have no right on commenting on on stuff which is which is beyond their expertise. And I think that had we have not had that, had this been a time when we didn't have social media, we probably wouldn't have had the same uh, pushback to vaccinations as we've seen with the yeah. anti-vax movement uh, 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 throughout the pandemic. Yeah. So to the person who is um, vaccine hesitant, I think that was the term that surfaced about a year ago, uh, to the person who's vaccine hesitant, but let's extend beyond that. So we have about 80 to 85% of the national population over 12 years of age, double vaccinated. To the person within that 85 percentile who has doubts about the booster, and the last time you were on with me, Dr. Blondo, you said you'd be the first one in line to uh, to to receive the booster. Yep. What's the what's the argument for the booster? What do you say to the person who says, you know, I, I have the first two, but I'm not sure about this. Well, I'll, I'll come clean and say my wife and I were we received our boosters on uh, Monday of last week uh, when we became eligible, and uh, we didn't wait too long after we became eligible to to get in line for the booster. As uh, soon as we could get an appointment, we get in and we had it done. Uh, and the reason being is because we do know that it's natural for immunity to wane over time, meaning your antibody levels will drop off. That's a natural phenomenon. And we know that uh, a certain level of antibody, uh, whatever that number is, is protective from severe disease. And so those two facts alone would be enough for me to get in line to be to get my booster shot to say, okay, yes, I've had my immunization. Yes, I know the virus still circulating. Yes, I've heard about breakthrough infections, and yes, I do not want to be one of those people that that has a breakthrough infection, which is potentially serious, and one of the ways of protecting myself from doing that is to get a booster. The other way is to simply not interact with people, always maintain a safe uh, distance, and, and keep a mask on, but we know that that's becoming less and less practical. So the evidence for, for uh, and, and the rationale for getting a booster, I think, is very, very clear. Um, and, and because we know that vaccines are not 100% efficacious, getting that booster, getting your antibody level back up is just good medicine, in my opinion. We're joined by Professor Thierry Bro. He's a professor at Sciences Po in Paris, leading expert on markets, geopolitics of oil and gas and energy security. He's also the author of a report titled High Energy Prices, Russia Fights Back for the Jacques Delors Institute in Paris. He's also a regular contributor to naturalgasworld.com. Professor Bro, thank you very much for coming back to the program. Can I just ask you to give us an overview 
of how things are in Europe as far as natural gas supplies are concerned. I read on your Twitter feed that they're far lower than they should be. People have concerns about heating their homes and having energy to get through their days. What's it like in Europe, and should we feel comfortable and untouchable here in North America? Well, uh, thank you very much. The, as you said, uh, we are facing a huge crisis, and this crisis is going to go global. So I don't think there you, you can expect replication all over the places. Uh, to to sum up what's ha- what's happening in Europe, we've received twenty five percent less Russian gas than normally in November. So this is a huge amount, uh, knowing that Russia is our number one supplier. And, and here, uh, again, the problem here, and you've said not nice to being politicians, uh, politicians in Europe are uh, half sleeping there and they are not waking up. I mean, in front of this, uh, you should be worried. You should uh, think about how's uh, winter going to unfold and you should uh, have a high level meeting with the Russian government to see why do we receive less gas. And here uh, we can have two answers. And again, we didn't ask the question, so we, we just can uh, think of the answer. One is there is a hidden agenda, a geopolitical game, and this needs to be uh, understood and factored in. And the other one, uh, which is perhaps a more naive answer, is uh, gas from Russia is uh, flat out. They can't produce more, and uh, they are facing some production issues that we are not aware, which means if this is the second element, we need to be uh, prepared for the end of winter because, unfortunately, we are, we are not going to have enough gas for uh, the whole winter if things are following this kind of route. Yeah, and last time, last time we talked, uh, you mentioned that certain governments, some governments in the EU, the European Union, and they are the energy-producing natural gas-exporting countries, are starting to say, well, maybe we're not going to export as much as we're supposed to by contract and convention because we need to take care of our domestic requirements. And so the importers are going to be looking at a potentially very difficult winter. And you have some concerns about the OECD countries having a green narrative, and therefore you, uh, you, you wrote to me, putting more power into the hands of Mr. Putin and, and Russia. And they have a disproportionate influence. Now, if I can just add to that, there wasn't long ago that this country, Canada, was seen to be a country which could be a net exporter and a really good exporter of, of energy to the rest of the world. We now find it difficult to even match to take care of our own needs because of policies. So I, I don't know if I asked, asked a question or made a statement, but please, Professor Bro, sort it out for me. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, the U.S. has been able to massively increase the oil and gas production thanks to the shale gas revolution. We in Europe decided uh, for policy reasons, for dogma, not to implement any of this. I mean, there could have been some... uh, possibilities in uh, in France, some possibilities in the UK. We decided to avoid it for climate reasons. And if you do this, I mean, as Churchill always uh, told us, I mean, uh, diversification is the number one. Uh, security of supply lies in diversification and diversification alone. So if we produce less, we have we are putting de facto more power in the countries that are producing more, which is Russia for uh, gas and OPEC plus for oil. So that's that, that's really unfortunate. Uh, but again, we still uh, still think that this is not a problem. Again, uh, this winter, 
should be a wake-up call and we should uh, in Europe be now a bit more worried about what, uh, how we are going to get our energy and not, and this is perhaps something that I, I like to stress, and not just talk about green hydrogen. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really shocked to see that we are in this energy crisis, in the middle of this energy crisis, and policymakers in Europe are talking days in, days out about hydrogen in 2050. I mean, my problem in my spreadsheet is to have enough gas for the people uh, of Europe in large until uh, March next year. And I think this is not understood in Brussels. So what we hear repeatedly is that renewables are going to be cheaper and will take care of all our, our needs. And, and, and there's a sense that it's going to be happening in the near term. What do you, what do you make of that? I mean, renewables are not cheaper per se. I mean, it's cheaper if you uh, uh, twist the spreadsheet, i.e. if you assume you're not going to need electricity when there is no wind or no sun, because you need a backup, and, and the backup is going to be uh, gas uh, if, uh, if you want to be the cleanest, uh, use the cleanest fuel. So that's the first element. The second element, uh, the dogma of the green narrative has been that we are going to reduce our energy consumption. And this is backed by no data. We've never made it. And, and so therefore thinking that people are going to reduce their uh, consumption. And so therefore we can retire oil and gas or coal and uh, put a little bit more of renewable and this with balance the system is, uh, is insane. And, and this is exactly where we are. I mean, I am in favor of massively deploying renewable, but I'm against the fact that we have to retire uh, oil and gas because this is what we are using now. And again, as we see, as we've seen in France, we've retired a nuclear uh, reactor. We've retired a nuclear reactor in Germany. We are going to retire in the middle of this crisis, starting from next year, more nuclear uh, plants in Germany. And people think we can balance the system. It doesn't work this way. A renewable will have a, a long lead time. They are coming. But the, the amount of renewable that we need is huge and in no way enough. Uh, to be able for us to retire already uh, oil and gas production. And uh, Russia, let's go back to Russia, and OPEC are the ones that are going to benefit, are they not? Because they are the producers of the natural gas and the, and the oil. Even President Biden was just before Glasgow and COP26 almost begging OPEC to increase its production. So OPEC and the Russians will be the ones who will benefit. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's, that's a huge issue we are going to face in the years to come. I mean, from 1973 to, uh, let's say, 2020, we've built a resilient system on security of supply. We had the IEA. We thought of diversification of supply. We tried to make sure that the OPEC market share and the Russian market share were uh, uh, acceptable for us and for them. Uh, we, we, if we reduce our own production and we are reducing it in Europe, you're reducing it in Canada, this means that de facto we are increasing the market share and therefore the power, the market power of the producers stay, uh, staying there. And the producers that will stay there are the ones coming from national oil companies, i.e. the uh, OPEC countries or Russia. What does it say to you that Japan just weeks after COP26, and the headline from, uh, I think it was uh, Bloomberg, was Japan is backing oil and gas, even after COP26 climate talks. What does that indicate to you? 
Well, I think it's the wake-up call. I think we, we are back to, uh, are we going to stay dogmatic as we are in Europe, or are we moving to pragmatism? I mean, Japan is, is an ideal uh, situation. I mean, uh, ideal if you look at security of supply, they rely on the rest of the world. So if they made a mistake, I mean, they are going in blackout for sure. And so therefore, they've understood uh, after this crisis or in the middle of this crisis that they need more oil and gas. And again, uh, Japan had... Uh, uh, had plans for green hydrogen. I mean, those plans will perhaps take on. I mean, it's a technology bet that we are we are, we are right now uh, doing. But right now, Japan needs more oil, uh, more gas, more coal, by the way, uh, to power the economy. And and I think w what we have to understand is, and this is what the Russians are showing us, uh, unfortunately, is if we do not master the energy transition properly, we are going to revert to coal i.e. to uh, pollute much more. And again, 2021 will be a horrible year in terms of climate for Europe because we will have emissions that will uh, be above, I think, the 2019. So in short, what we are doing here in Europe, we are experiencing an energy transition without gas. And the energy transition without gas ends up in people having to pay much higher prices and we are polluting much more the environment, i.e. Right. unsustainable. The McDonald Laurier Institute is holding a webinar next week, Canada's Broken Promise to Afghanistan. As Afghan citizens who worked for and assisted Canada during the decade-plus conflict there, our involvement there was a decade-plus, continue to flee for their lives from Taliban hunting them. Now, you know, we've spoken with former interpreters who joined us from Afghanistan who talked about how terrified they were about being discovered by the Taliban and what would happen to them and what would happen to their families if they were, in fact, caught. It's, a, it's an extremely disturbing situation, an enormous humanitarian crisis, and uh, we're going to talk about this. So the, there's going to be the, uh, the webinar at um, the McDonald Laurier Institute, Canada's Broken Promise to Afghanistan. That'll be December the 8th at 10.30 p.m. You can go to visit, or events rather, at mcdonaldlaurier.com, events at mcdonaldlaurier.com. We spoke some about this yesterday with Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the former commanding officer of the 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army. He uh, commanded that division in Afghanistan for 15 months. He talked about his concerns. Joining us now to, uh, to share his thoughts, Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie, retired former commander and chief of staff of the Canadian Army and former member of parliament. General Leslie, thank you very much for the time, and thank you for your service, sir. Well, thank you, and thanks for what you do as well. well I appreciate that. Uh, we hope to be uh, joined by uh, uh, Christopher Alexander, Chris Alexander, the former ambassador to, uh, to Afghanistan. We're just not able to connect with the ambassador at this time. So we have this enormous humanitarian crisis underway in Afghanistan. We've talked to uh, General Milner, who you know very well, about the situation there. Most Afghans who assisted Canada during the Canadian deployment are not outside Afghanistan, and they've not been rescued by Canada, and they face torture and death if they're captured by the Taliban. General, please speak to us about that. Well, you hit the nail on the head. There's about thirty to 40,000 Afghan citizens whose paths crossed with Canadians, and they were very helpful in helping us help them uh, fight the good fight and keep their country as safe as possible. Um, there's been about 4,000 of that 40,000 who managed to get out. 
couple of thousand were brought out by the airlift, which wasn't terribly well done. That's the Canadian airlift at the height of the crisis. And since then, less than really three or 4,000 have made it to Canada. So that leaves between 30 to 35,000 who are still languishing at risk of their lives uh, in Afghanistan. So this is not our finest moment. No, and I find it, uh, it's, it's, it's rare to have senior military officers, former officers, members of our military speak out on issues where, in fact, it challenges the, challenges the government, not only the sitting government, also the opposition parties. And uh, when I spoke with General Milner last, we had just talked about the safe houses, the funding having run out, and the safe houses having been closed, and people evicted and ejected from the safe houses, and left really to their own means and devices and trying to escape from uh, from, from the Taliban. What, res- what level of responsibility does our federal government still have General Leslie, what do you want to see done? Well, certainly more than what's happening right now. Um, as mentioned, less than 4,000 have made it out. Yeah. Uh, there's an organization, there's several organizations out there. The one that Dean Milner has been involved with is called VTN, Veterans Transition Network. Go to vtncanada.org, and it tells you how to donate. And thanks to their efforts in the last couple of months, They've brought out, and I'm just looking at their website, 1,596 Afghans. And this is a non-governmental organization which has been asking for government funding and hasn't received a penny. So literally a couple of million dollars could save quite a large number of lives. And yet the government is spending hundreds of billions of dollars on other activities and items. So I'm kind of hoping that a bunch of folk will get together and get hold of their members of parliament and suggest that the government donate to the Canadian Veterans Transition System and contribute to getting Afghans who helped us fight the good fight out of that country. Yeah, vtncanada.org. I spoke with members of Canada's military who served in Afghanistan and who told me that the interpreters... And we spoke with interpreters as well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, who told me that interpreters, Afghan interpreters, went out on the front lines with them, unarmed. And they would often be the target, the first target for the insurgents, because you eliminate the interpreter, you eliminate an important um, part of the chain of getting the mission complete and getting home safely. And they said very clearly that these interpreters saved Canadian lives. And these were Canadian soldiers, members of Canada's military, who had served in Afghanistan, saying these interpreters, the Afghan interpreters, saved Canadian lives. It is deeply disturbing and deeply troubling, General Leslie, that the government has taken what appears to be advantage of photo opportunities, has said things like, well, you were there for us, so we're there for you, and that's disappeared, it appears. And it is so disturbing, and it, it, it it's... It's something that we need to really need to challenge. Would you speak to the to what the interpreters meant and what the Afghans who worked with Canada over that ten plus year period what they meant to the Canadian effort? Well, um, they were inseparable from the Canadian troops that they were supporting, and of course, they were often the first targets because they stood out. They wore slightly different uh, attire. They did not have a weapon. They were the ones who were doing the interaction with the tribal elders. 
it's inconceivable that they would be left behind when we so precipitously withdrew, but they were. All right, so what do we do to make sure that their lives are as safe as possible? There are a number of them that are being executed because they served Canada against the Taliban, and we have to get more of them out. And the only way that seems to be working is not the government's efforts per se, but organizations of Canadian veterans who share this passion for the interpreters and their families and all the other great Afghans that gave us a hand fight and a good fight, as I mentioned, they need resources to get out. Not much is happening. Yeah, desperately painful for Canadian veterans who served in, in Afghanistan to understand this and who had a relationship with the interpreters and got to know about their families, got to know about their lives that they served alongside them. It must be just absolutely uh, devastating for many members of our armed forces who served in uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah, and of course, for Afghanistan, I mean, the Taliban were ousted by the Americans essentially 20 years ago. Um, at the time, they imposed harsh rule, neglect to provide basic services. Uh, they took misogyny to a new level of low. Uh, their abuse of human rights was legendary. And the same gang is now back in power. So they are targeting those who, who fought or who provided assistance to those who were fighting against the Taliban, such as Canadians, Americans. And they are victims right now. And, of course, a whole bunch of them were told to go to Kabul by a variety of governments, which made yeah. me stand out. They're now falling easy prey to the Taliban as they carry out these revenge attacks on them. The interesting twist to all this is essentially the Taliban are holding their own citizens hostage. A whole bunch are facing the threat of starvation or freezing to death this winter because social services have essentially collapsed. So in this chaos, the true nature of the Taliban is reemerging and they're engaging in murder and rape and pillage. And one large segment of these targets are the are the interpreters and the drivers and the guards that, that gave us invaluable help. General Leslie, I understand and I support the idea of Canadians getting onto their members of parliament and, and demanding action, demanding that we that we really follow through with our commitment to at least forty thousand Afghans who find themselves in this untenable, and many of them in absolutely critically dangerous realities. But you were a member of Parliament. You understand how it works in that building. How significantly reacted to our um, efforts by Canadian citizens? So if Canadians get on to their member of Parliament and they say, we want to see things done, we demand this be done, are we listened to? Well, the more people who get hold of their member of Parliament, the more great radio hosts <laughs> who invite these issues to be debated and discussed in their programs, the more television shows, the more governments respond. Look, a variety of promises were made. The prime minister promised to bring 40,000 out. That hasn't happened. And it's been over three and a half months since the air bridge ran out of time. President Biden made the decision to withdraw and Canada stopped the air bridge a couple of days ahead of everybody else. Bottom line is only 3,000 people were brought out. That leaves a lot to fulfill that promise. And there's an organized look. If the government doesn't want to do it or can't find the wherewithal to get it organized, there's organizations that are doing excellent work in rescuing Afghans. Right now, I've already mentioned one. 
VTN Canada, Veterans Transition Network, and they've got a bunch of of uh, Afghan vets who are helping them organize and reaching out to their personal networks to the Afghan communities across Canada, and based on their own experiences, to contact these Afghans in Afghanistan and provide funding for safe houses so they can hide from the Taliban who are hunting them. Yeah. You just think about that. You hear the words hunting them. And we spoke with interpreters. I'll say this again, and our listeners heard it in Afghanistan, explaining what would happen to them if the Taliban caught up with them. Subsequently, I found that some of them had gotten out, some by their own means, others with the assistance of Canada, but then they found themselves in another country, stranded. Uh, the Canadian government wasn't doing anything to move them out of that country into into this nation, and they were at their wits' end and at their economic means' end as well. So it's it's not an impossible reality for our federal government to step up and, and make a difference. I understand the private organizations are doing it, and God bless them, and let's support them. It's Christmas. Let's do what we can to help where people really need it. But it's not an impossible task for the federal government. You know, the, the, the McDonald Laurier Institute points out, and here, let me just read this sentence. The contrast with the significant enthusiasm to welcome and support Syrian refugees could not be more stark. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We've done it before. We can do it now. And we've got to get it done, um, especially as the winter snows approach. Yeah. It's, th- there's, there's a huge issue as well. And um, General Schlosser talked about this yesterday and, and the concern about mass starvation uh, in Afghanistan, the, the huge national cost. And, and, and it's pointed out again in the MLI uh, webinar information that you'll be participating in. Um, a generation of young women has grown up understanding that they have rights and they can go to school and they can uh, build careers and build lives as they wish. And now the Taliban are reverting to the way they were that that must be extremely painful, and that's considered what this what's happening to this generation of young women. It is, and one of the, the great accomplishments of our collective twenty year effort, Canada was there for twelve, was that 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 flame that flame of hope is flickering, um, but it was burning bright about the last ten or twelve years. You had Afghan women who were uh, members of the judiciary or police chiefs or district supervisors or fighter pilots, uh, senior officers in the armed forces, uh, judges, teachers. Of course, they've all been sent home. And in part, that's contributed to the collapse of the social services and indeed the government systems because those women were performing sterling work and actually keeping the Afghan government running. They've all been sent home and a variety of uh, thugs have taken their place. The same people that were kicked out 20 years ago. Uh, and their spots have not changed. They are dangerous leopards, and they're preying on their own people. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 